From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The deadliest accident in memory on Mount Everest is not likely to deter some would-be climbers. People ask me this every time one of these things happen. They say, you know, now that this tragedy has happened, do you think fewer people will go? And I say, no, just the opposite. Every time that there's one of these tragedies, in fact, more people go. The danger is part of the allure. I mean, if it were safe, why bother? Also, four years after the Deepwater Horizon disaster, BP says it's finished the oil cleanup, but others say no. Where the oil was heaviest, we still see it fairly frequently. Sometimes that's little tar balls, but last June, a 40,000-pound mat of tar rolled up onto East Grand Terre, Louisiana. There are hundreds, thousands of pounds of oil left in the system. That and more of your haiku this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. To scale the highest mountain in the world was once only possible for the most skilled and brave climbers. But today, just about any fit person with enough money can summit Mount Everest. Those ascents wouldn't be possible without help from the Sherpas, native to the mountains. But a recent deadly accident that swept away 16 of them may disrupt the entire climbing season for 2014. As we record this, some two-thirds of the Sherpas are refusing to climb what is becoming an increasingly dangerous peak as a warming world speeds the melting of glaciers. We're joined now from Kathmandu, Nepal, by Grayson Schaefer, senior editor and staff writer for Outside Magazine. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me, Steve. Tell me about some of the Sherpas you've met in Nepal. What's their job? Well, the job is extremely physical. All of the guys who do this are wiry and incredibly strong. You know, they need to be able to carry an 80-pound backpack up through the Kumbu Icefall, which is, uh, you know, 2,000 vertical feet, starting at 17,600 feet, going through about 19,500 feet. And they do, you know, up to 10 or 20 laps through this thing each season. And it's incredibly dangerous work, very physical. And, um, you know, they basically have to to have a lot of fortitude to be able to to do that many laps uh, and keep going day after day. There have been a couple of studies done recently that uh, have shown that there definitely is, you know, a genetic propensity for Sherpas to be able to use, uh, you know, what available oxygen there is near the summit of Everest much more efficiently than what Westerners are able to use. For the most part, these guys are in a league of their own. They're basically able to do a lot more work than uh, most Westerners, you know, at any given altitude. Now, Grayson, I understand you've been uh, up at least a good ways up uh Mount Everest uh, in that territory. Tell me, what's it like up there? Well, I've been into, you know, been been well into the, the Kumbu Icefall. And, um, you know, it's this eerie sort of place, you know, where these guys were killed, where it seems very quiet, but there's this sort of low background rumble where you can hear this uh, sort of clicking and popping and things are constantly shifting underneath you. And, you know, the Kumbu Icefall is this hanging glacier, essentially this sort of river of ice that's you know, tumbling down the side of the mountain. And so it's actually moving constantly. And you have these huge teetering blocks, you know, apartment building size blocks of ice that uh, are constantly shifting. And then above it all, you have the west shoulder of Everest on one side and uh, Nupsi, which is a 7,000 meter peak on the other side, which are also sheathed in ice and constantly sending avalanches down on the route. You know, one of the other problems that you get, you know, with warming temperatures is that, um, 
the uh, ice melts out to rock. Typically, the rocks and cobbles and boulders and that sort of thing is sort of cemented into the mountain. And when it gets really warm, like we saw in 2012, these rocks will melt out and start tumbling down like missiles. And, you know, I heard a number of of, uh, reports from people who, you know, would hear suitcase-sized boulders whistling by them. And uh, there were a number of Sherpas who were, you know, hit and injured and and some even critically injured by uh, rockfall that was due to melting ice. It's obviously dangerous work. Uh, How dangerous is it relative to other dangerous occupations? We know that 1% of people who leave base camp and head for the summit are probably not going to come back. And even though the Sherpas are probably more capable, uh, you know, more genetically advantaged to climbing, the fact that they're spending so much time in the shooting gallery there, it exposes them to much greater risk. If you look at something like an actuarial table and you compare the chance of dying where, you know, working as a Sherpa, it ends up being, you know, more dangerous than working as an Alaskan bush pilot, more dangerous than being, you know, a commercial fisherman like on the deadliest catch and probably even more dangerous than uh, being a soldier in the U.S. military. It's really among the most dangerous occupations I think you can have. And it's not just death by avalanche that puts them in peril. I was surprised to read in your articles that there are a lot of other health complications associated with the work. Can you tell me about that, please? Yeah, that was one of the things that I was really surprised to find that, uh, you know, when I went looking in 2012 uh, in the fall when I went trying to meet people who had lost their primary wage earners uh, in the mountains, that I found not only uh, a number of widows and um, children who had lost their fathers, but also a number of disabled men who had suffered stroke. I think the medical evidence is still sort of inconclusive on whether there's actually a link between stroke and high altitude, but certainly anecdotally, it seems like it happens far more often to you know young fit men who ordinarily would have low risk for stroke. And then in addition to that, you still have the sort of standard high altitude ailments like uh, high altitude pulmonary edema and cerebral edema. And these are both where your brain and your lungs begin leaking fluid, which can become life-threatening extremely quickly if you don't get down to lower altitude. Now, I know hikers can spend a lot of money to summit Mount Everest. Uh, How much of that goes to the Sherpas that uh, make it possible? The way that the sort of the economy of Everest breaks down, you know, a permit to climb Everest costs about $10,000 a person. That gets factored into the price that an outfitter charges you, which is typically between about thirty and a hundred thousand dollars. The Sherpas will typically make between two and six thousand dollars per three month season, you know, which may not seem like a lot of money for somebody from the U.S., but is in fact, you know, eight to ten times what the average person in Nepal makes. Grayson, some would criticize what's going on at Everest as uh, being a very expensive theme park. I mean, if you look at the dark side of this. Uh, Part of the thrill for the thrill seekers is that, uh, hey, I was on that expedition, a couple people died, but I made it out. Yeah, and you know, I, people ask me this every time one of these things happen. They say, you know, now that this tragedy has happened, do you think fewer people will go? And I say, no, just the opposite. Every time that there's one of these tragedies, in fact, more people go. And I think it's just what you're talking about. I mean, I think that the danger is part of the allure. I mean, if it were safe, why bother? So how ethical is it for Westerners to continue extreme hikes like ever, given the danger it presents for the Sherpas? It's just not something that you can easily explain to others, uh, even if you can explain it to yourself, you know, why you're doing this and why you're putting these people at risk. Normally, when people do really dangerous jobs, it's for things that society deems necessary, like, you know, building bridges and dams and going to fight wars and that sort of thing, not, uh, you know, taking people up a mountain so that they can have a look around. Grayson Schaefer is senior editor and staff writer at Outside Magazine. 
Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Well, thanks for having me. Spring brings blooming flowers, songbirds, and a fresh crop of fleas and ticks for our cats and dogs. Many people use pesticide-containing flea collars on their pets, but the EPA is now banning some of those collars because young children who snuggle up to their pets can get exposed to unhealthful amounts of the pesticides. The ban comes after eight years of litigation brought by the Natural Resources Defense Council to force the EPA to act. We called up Miriam Rotkin Elman, a senior scientist at NRDC, to tell us about the ban and wiser choices for parents and pet owners. Welcome to Living on Earth, Miriam. Nice to be here. Give me the basics here. What's the problem with flea collars? We're concerned that there are pesticides that are extremely toxic for kids used in flea collars. And flea collars are designed to work by spreading that pesticide on the pet. And when kids come in contact with their pet, which they do on a daily basis, they come into contact with that very toxic pesticide. So talk to me about these two chemicals. What are the problems with them as far as science knows? So there are two different pesticides that are part of related classes of pesticides. So tetrachlorophenphos is a kind of pesticide that's called an organophosphate. And over the last 15 years or so, there's mounting evidence that organophosphates can interfere with the developing brain so that prenatal exposures and early life exposures to this pesticide can actually result in delays in motor development, loss of IQ points, or neurobehavioral problems, um, such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So this class, organophosphates, has been linked to all those different problems. The second pesticide, which is perpoxer, is part of a related class of chemicals called carbamates. And unfortunately, it also has many of the same toxic characteristics. Both of these are readily available still, unfortunately, on the shelves. So uh, what has EPA uh, decided to do about these flea collars? EPA took the right action on Propoxer last month in March and issued a cancellation order. Unfortunately, they gave the manufacturers of these flea collars a pretty sweet deal and allowed for a really long phase-out period. That phase-out period means that the company can keep making these flea collars, despite the fact that EPA found there to be unsafe for children. And then also they can continue to be sold um, for up to two years to retailers. And then retailers can sell them indefinitely. Now, the other pesticide that we're worried about, tetrachlorophenphos, the Environmental Protection Agency has been completely silent. We have not received any notification, and that's why we're continuing to pursue our court case and hoping that the court can help us get a timeline from EPA and help move it in the right direction as well. And what exactly are these products that are going to be taken off the market, although it sounds like it's going to take two years? So the brand name for tetrachlorophenphos is called Hearts, and so they have a number of products, but you can usually see the name Hearts on the label somewhere. And then Propoxer-containing products can go by a whole host of names, Biospot, Adams, Zodiac, Sargents. Those are all examples of products that contain Propoxer, but it's really important to actually take a look at the active ingredient and look for the word Propoxer as well, because they do change the names quite a bit. Miriam, I have to ask you, if these chemicals are bad for children, what about the pets? 
Well, pets are mammals too. And unfortunately, these two pesticides, tetrachlorophenfos and propoxor, really interfere with the nervous system of mammals too. There are some you know, good rules of thumb for preventing harm to both pets and kids when you're talking about using pesticides. What are those good rules? It's always important to keep your toxic pesticides as your last resort and look for alternative methods to avoid using these pesticides at all. If you do need to use some kind of pesticide for fleas, there are a whole host of options that are less toxic and even some that can be taken by the pet as a pill and then therefore don't leave that toxic residue on their fur, which can harm kids. Uh, Miriam, do you have a dog? I do have a dog. So what do you do with your dog when it comes to protecting your dog from ticks and fleas? My dog, even though she hates it, gets regular baths, um, and she looks at me very sad when, I, when it's time, but you know she gets those baths every other week. With just regular dog shampoo, it doesn't require any you know, special toxic shampoos or anything like that. Um, we keep her bed clean as well, and we try to keep our house pretty clean. And honestly, that's all I've ever had to use for fleas. Um, you know, every once in a while, there's a flea, and the regular bathing really takes care of it. We do live in an area where ticks are of concern, and so I do end up needing to use a pesticide every once in a while, the least toxic available that um, is known to provide good coverage for ticks. And I pay attention to where my dog is spending time. If I'm spending time with a lot of kids, I may forego the pesticide treatment. Miriam Rotkin-Ellman is a senior scientist at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We have to thank so many of our listeners who sent in haiku poems in honor of Earth Day and Poetry Month. There were some common themes. Many celebrated our lovely Earth. Take Pat Fletcher of Tacoma, Washington, who wrote, Intermittent sun shining through rolling ripples of clouds, perfect day. But then many of you sounded a note of foreboding. I am Lewis Flint Cece. I'm a novelist and poet by night, but I make my living as an Android software engineer for Skype here in Silicon Valley. This year, I noticed that things were blooming about a month early in my garden and backyard, and that has me worried, and that led to the haiku. The cherry tree sheds, blooms on freshly fallen snow. Spring has come too soon. And we have far too many to read them all on the air, but we'll post them on our website, LOE.org, and there'll be some later in the show, so keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In honor of the Earth Day season, we turn to one of the most environmentally conscious members of President Obama's White House senior team, science advisor John Holdren. As America's top scientist, Holdren has been instrumental in marshalling federal resources to understand and address climate disruption and helping to establish a climate assessment program. I asked him about President Obama's climate action plan, which he helped to develop. Well, there are three components to the president's climate action plan. The first one is reducing carbon pollution in the United States. Uh, The second component is improving preparedness for and resilience against the kinds of climate changes that we're no longer able to avoid. That is, providing the kinds of information to communities, to businesses, to individuals that will enable them better prepare for and respond to climate change. 
Uh, the third component of the action plan is to increase our engagement with other countries in order to get their collaboration in a global approach to reducing greenhouse gas emissions as well as a global approach to increasing preparedness. Well, let's talk about uh, sea level. The National Climate Assessment Draft Report talks of a range of 8 inches to 6 feet, I think, is the the biggest range uh, the report gives of sea level rise over the next century. And, of course, some of our biggest cities are on the coast, New York, Boston, Miami, uh, New Orleans. What should those cities be doing now to prepare for a rising sea, and how can the federal government help? Well, rising sea level is a problem for a number of reasons, and one in particular is the extra damage done by storm surges on top of a rising sea level. We saw that already in the case of Sandy. The ways that we can prepare, number one, we need to understand uh, where the vulnerability is going to be in terms of the potential for coastal flooding. We launched uh, the first installment of our climate data initiative just a few weeks ago basically providing data sets for decision makers all around our coasts to know what's coming. One of the things that we would expect is that planners and developers would take note and uh, would not construct uh, new housing or new commercial space or other infrastructure in the areas that are most at risk of coastal flooding. Another thing we can do is invest in the protection of natural barriers, sand dunes, mangroves, uh, wetlands of a variety of kinds that help protect against uh, storm surges when they occur. The National Climate Assessment also talks about thresholds, tipping points, and surprises. What might be some examples? Uh, I know recently you issued a report about methane. Well, one of the concerns about methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas, is that large quantities of methane are stored under the tundra, under permafrost, and large quantities of methane are stored in a form called methane clathrates or methane hydrates under shallow coastal seas. And there has been a concern that in a warming world, uh, a very substantial quantity of methane might be released relatively rapidly. It's one of many tipping points that are looked at in terms of the potential for unpleasant surprises. Another tipping point would be if the warming of uh, the southern oceans and other aspects of global climate change were to destabilize the West Antarctic ice sheet. That ice sheet contains the equivalent of about five meters of sea level rise. And so another tipping point that is at least talked about is the possibility that we could destabilize that ice sheet and encounter a much larger rate of sea level rise than is currently projected. So 2015 is going to be an important year for climate talks. Uh, The international community gets together in Paris. A new agreement will have to be adopted by all parties. As the president's science advisor, what kind of preparations are you making for these negotiations? Well, we're obviously having a lot of conversations among the president's uh, senior advisors in the White House and bringing in the relevant members of the cabinet. All of these folks are sitting around tables and working out uh, what the United States position should be going into the Paris talks. And, of course, we're working very hard to make sure that the United States stays on track to meet the goal the president already announced of reducing U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 17 percent from their 2005 levels by 2020. Uh, Because, after all, we're going to be talking about targets going forward after the year 2020, and uh, we better demonstrate that we can meet the early-term targets in order to have the credibility to propose and push forward uh, longer-term and more ambitious targets. 
What would the agreement coming out of Paris have to look like to avert the worst effects of climate change, in your opinion? The world really needs to be on a declining trajectory of greenhouse gas emissions after 2025. If greenhouse gas emissions are still growing post-2025, it is uh, very unlikely that the world would be able to avoid exceeding the target of 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels that was agreed by the G20 in 2009. And indeed, if we're still growing after 2025, it will be a challenge even to stop at 3 degrees Celsius. Those numbers may sound small, but it's important to remember that the Earth's average surface temperature is a little bit like the temperature of the body. It's really an index of the state of the underlying system. If your body temperature went up 3 degrees uh, C, you'd know that you were having a serious problem. And similarly, the world in terms of its whole climate system, we'll be having a serious problem if we go to three degrees C or more. Now, the White House recently announced that it will again delay a decision on the Keystone XL pipeline, which would bring uh, the tar sands oil from Canada through the U.S. to Gulf Coast refineries. Uh, This on the basis of litigation over the proposed route. What's your opinion of the Keystone project? How does it fit into our need to reduce emissions? As the president's science advisor, I reserve my opinion on controversial matters of that sort for the president. As the president's science advisor, what concerns you most about our ecological systems? What keeps you up at night? Well, I would say the thing that keeps me up at night the most is uh, the climate change issue. And the, the reason for that is that climate is the envelope within which all other environmental conditions and processes have to function. And if we distort that envelope enough, as we are well on our way to doing, we imperil the functioning of all the other environmental conditions and processes on which human well-being depends. We're going to change the distribution and abundance of species, both the ones we love and the ones we hate. Uh, We're going to change the productivity of ecosystems. We're going to change the chemistry of the ocean in ways that could imperil uh, ocean fish production. So almost no matter what environmental problem you're interested in, you better be interested in addressing the climate change challenge. And that's why it has such high priority in the Obama administration. John Holdren is assistant to President Barack Obama and director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House. Thanks so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Steve. April, Earth Month, we revisit some past stories to find out what developments there have been. On April 20, 2010, BP's Deepwater Horizon well exploded, killing 11 workers and eventually gushing over 200 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. Soon after the blowout, a Sky News reporter asked BP CEO Tony Hayward what effect he thought the oil would have on the Gulf of Mexico. I think the environmental impact of this disaster is likely to have been very, very modest. It's impossible to say, and we will mount, as part of the aftermath, a very detailed environmental assessment. But everything we can see at the moment suggests that the overall environmental impact of this will be very, very modest. Well, many researchers along the Gulf Coast did not believe Mr. Hayward was right. And back in 2010, Living on Earth's Jeff Young visited the coast of southern Louisiana to check out the reality. Grand Isle is about as far south as you can get in Louisiana by land, or what's left of the land anyway. Erosion and subsidence have melted miles of the surrounding marsh into open water, but this is still crucial bird habitat 
and an important time for birds, breeding season. There are at least turns mating over there on the beach, so that would be a, a normal breeding season behavior. Melanie Driscoll has binoculars pressed to her eyes, as she often does. She directs Audubon's Louisiana program. They're just toward the edge of the water. Um, it's a very quick event. It's over already. They're not big on afterglow, are they? Just <laughs> <laughs> Bird copulation is a fairly uh, short-lived event, uh, without a lot of ceremony usually. The male tern flies back to his mate with a gift, a small fish. In a normal year, this would be a happy time and a happy scene for Driscoll, watching resident species take to the nests and thousands of migrants pass through. But this is not a normal year. The long line of bright orange oil booms just offshore reminds us. The dozen or so oil platforms on the horizon remind us. And everything about the tern's little love scene here now seems loaded with danger. Is the oil in the water here? Is it in that fish he just caught? They don't get any forewarning. They eat the food that's out there. They drink the water in the gulf. And they're driven to breed where they've bred before. Whether that habitat's disturbed or not just affects their success, not their drive to breed here. There are globally important bird areas in these marshes and barrier islands. And some are now taking oil. Driscoll is here to keep tabs on what is likely to be a grim toll. The oil is slowly taking effect, just as many birds are most vulnerable. She takes meticulous notes on the sanderlings, turnstones, red knots, brown pelicans. The point is not just to look for oiled or dead birds, but to detect the absence of birds. Because birds will die undiscovered, we are less reliant on a body count in this spill because it is so different than eventually a change in in abundance, a change in numbers. You might not know what's really going on here until next year. We likely won't know for a year. For some species, other species, many birds uh, of northern gannets, particularly young, stay out in the Gulf for a couple of years until they reach breeding maturity. If those birds are dying, it may be three or four years before we notice a change in the nesting population. Boy, it's so complicated, the interaction of things here. I mean, uh, as a layperson, your impression is... Is there oil on the bird? No? Well, okay. But there's a lot more to it than that. There's a saying about ecology that it's not rocket science. It's a lot more complicated than that. We're looking at a system. The birds rely not just on their feathers insulating them. They rely on food chains that are underwater or in the sand. They rely on protection from predators by being familiar with their surroundings. It's very complicated. And it gets more complicated. Several fish stocks in the Gulf were already in serious decline. The mouth of the Mississippi already sees a massive dead zone of low oxygen each year. The land is already slipping into the sea, and now comes the oil. Driscoll wonders how much the ecosystem can take. We don't know. We're playing roulette with these Louisiana marshes. They're under many, many threats. Um, They're in a working landscape, and that puts them at more risk for things like oil and gas spills. We don't know. This fragile system is very productive. There's a threshold, so you may have increased productivity for a time period before a crash. We're afraid of the crash. We don't know what will be the tipping point. The oil makes that tipping point probably closer. Jiskel and other scientists and conservationists in the region are settling in for the long haul. Stopping the gushing oil in the Gulf may be a race, but understanding the ecological impact is a marathon. 
Well, four years later, BP has announced that it's ending the active cleanup from the spill, even though U.S. Coast Guard officials argue that the job's not finished. And to find out how the birds in the Gulf are faring today, we called up Audubon's Melanie Driscoll again. She says oil is still washing up on Louisiana's beaches. Where the oil was heaviest, we still see it fairly frequently. Places like Grand Isle, where we spoke four years ago, It occurs after summer storms, hurricanes, and other high tides. Sometimes that's little tar balls, but last June, a 40,000-pound mat of tar rolled up onto East Grand Terre, Louisiana. There are hundreds, thousands of pounds of oil left in the system, and some of those will continue to come up on our beaches. What is the state of the Gulf of Mexico today? How is the ecosystem doing? We know from some of the science done since the oil spill that there are some ecological effects from the spill. We know that some deepwater corals near the spill site have been killed. We've seen things like oil accumulated in the tissues and eggs of birds like the American white pelican and the common loon, and that shorebirds have been less successful foraging in areas where the cleanup activities cause continued disturbance. We expect that there will be studies eventually that show that hundreds of thousands of birds were killed during the acute phase of the disaster. But the challenge is that at this time, most of the studies are tied up in the natural resources damage assessment. What scientists know is held within that legal process to prosecute the responsible parties. And so the government can't talk about what's really going on with the Gulf ecosystem. Um, And independent conservation organizations can't appropriately help guide responses because a lot of the studies are not available at this time. From other spills, we know that acute toxicity, mutations, egg failure, reduced nestling growth, reduced reproduction and survival can plague birds in spill impact areas. And this was a very big spill impact area. Back when you spoke to Jeff Young, you said that we wouldn't know the impact of of the spill on bird populations for a few years. We're four years on. Overall, how are the birds of the Gulf doing, do you think? It's a little difficult to say. You know, we go out to nesting islands and we see a couple of different things. Out in Barataria Bay and Bay Jimmy, where the oil came in very heavily, um, some of the islands, like Queen Bess, have what seem to be thriving populations of pelicans and roseate spoonbills, terns and egrets. Other islands where the birds were nesting during that fateful summer of 2010, the islands are completely gone or they are so small that there's no room for birds to nest. And if they dared to try, their nests would be overwashed in the first summer storm. So those birds had to go somewhere. And we don't have really good tracking available to know where those birds have gone or if they're breeding successfully somewhere else. Um, What happened to the islands? Why did they go away? The islands were in a bay in which they were already eroding, and they were eroding fairly quickly. But some of those islands were covered with thick, lush mangroves that were the nesting sites for the brown pelicans. Oil, when it heavily coats marsh grass or mangroves, can suffocate the roots. And the root systems are what really hold the sediment together. They hold the sand in place and allow there to be land out in the middle of the gulf. The mangroves are dead. It actually looks like a little miniature tree graveyard out on one of the sites. Um, It's just stark brown branches where thriving green mangroves coated an island. As the roots have died, the erosion has either increased or continued, and there's virtually nothing left now. 
This is, again, the challenge in that all of the science being done, or most of it, is held within a confidential process. All I can say is I've never seen mangroves die this quickly, and the erosion seems to be very high. I can't say that that's attributable to the spill. It's just very suspicious that this would be happening at that rate. So it's almost a quarter century ago that the Exxon Valdez spill occurred, and it's still impacting the the ecosystem there, Prince William Sound in Alaska. How long before we will really know the scope of the damage that was done to the Gulf of Mexico by the Deepwater Horizon disaster? Like with the Exxon Valdez, I think we'll know um, we'll know parts of it in the next few years, but that it will be really decades until we know the full toll. The pigeon guillemot is the bird species that has struggled the most to recover from the Exxon Valdez spill. Many thousands died in Prince William Sound during the disaster. And since then, they have faced problems both in the food that the adults eat and in the pigeon guillemots becoming a favored prey of mink and river otter when the shellfish prey of the mink and river otter was compromised by the spill. Because of the increase in a variety of threats, the pigeon guillemot population in the Prince William Sound has never recovered. As Aldo Leopold stated, to keep every cog and wheel is the first precaution of intelligent tinkering. We as humans are really not wise enough to randomly tug at strands in the web of life and then to predict which tug should cause a link to break. It puts us in the position now of of needing to study to monitor, to steward and restore, and to hope that in doing so, we are able to support the populations damaged by this spill, even though we can't say yet which of those populations are most critically damaged. Melanie Driscoll is the Director of Bird Conservation for the Gulf of Mexico and the Mississippi Flyway for the National Audubon Society. Thanks for taking the time with us today, Melanie. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure to be here. And now, more of your Earth Day haiku. My name is John Biddle, and I was born in Lydney in the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire, England. My haiku is inspired by a feeling that I had when I was listening to a dawn chorus. And I imagine that birds, when they go to sleep in the evening, do not take it for granted that the sun is going to come up in the morning. And so when they do see the sun rise, they sing and they rejoice. We await Earth Day. Birds rejoice at break of day. Each day is Earth Day. Scott Suma from Rockford, Illinois, was all for celebrating Earth Day, too. He sent us several poems, including this one. Bake the earth a cake. Throw a party for nature. Clean up when you're done. John Brown from Fashion Island in Puget Sound even found something to celebrate in the disease that's killing sea stars that eat shellfish. Big starfish die off. More muscles for you and me in months with an R. There's lots more ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 
When we last spoke with Ben Rains of the Weeks Bay Foundation in Alabama about a year ago, he told us an amazing story about an underwater woodland off the coast of Alabama. A local fishermen had discovered a mysteriously fishy patch of ocean, and when divers checked it out, they found a forest of ancient cypress stumps on the ocean floor. Since then, Ben has been collaborating with scientists to study the submerged trees and working on a documentary about it. He joins us now from Fairhope, Alabama. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. So, Ben, remind us about this forest. What does it look like? Well, it, it's there's an ancient river channel that meanders through the site, and you just see all these logs uh, laying all over the bottom and then stumps projecting up off the bottom. When you get closer and start looking, you know, the logs still have bark. We're actually finding trees with lightning scars on them. Uh, they're just incredibly well-preserved, and it's just this magic sort of place you swim through, realizing you're traveling back in time 50,000 years. Now, you've been working with scientists who've been studying this forest uh, over the past year. What have you learned since we last spoke? Well, we've learned that some of the individual trees may have been as old as 2,000 years before they died. So these were like redwoods. We've got stumps down there that are up to 10 feet across. And, you know, you don't see trees like that on the Gulf Coast, and you can't really imagine them. But before we were here cutting everything down, that's what was here, just this forest of trees so big, Ten people with their arms outstretched couldn't fit all the way around it, holding hands. So remind me what science tells us about the age of this forest again. Well, you know, if you look just at the depth, you would think that it should be about twelve to 14,000 years old. But then when we did the actual radiocarbon dating, which was done at uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, they did it three times because they were so puzzled they came back radiocarbon dead, which means older than 50,000 years. So what they believe has happened is as Louisiana has gotten heavier over the eons with mud coming down the Mississippi River, you know, weighing down the delta over there, it's caused the bottom over here to rise up like a bulge. You know, like if you squeeze a balloon, it it gets bigger in another spot. Mm -hmm. So the depth here doesn't appear to be accurate as far as how old the forest is. So now we're having some uranium dating done of the trees, and that's going to be done in Taiwan. And it's a whole new technique. So... Hopefully, we'll get a very accurate date for when the forest was dry land. But at this point, it's something more than 50,000 years. Right, and that's about as precise as we can get right now. What's the latest theory as to how this forest got there? What was the accident in nature that uh, preserved this whole thing? Well, we're still working on that a little bit, and when we get a more precise date, we may be able to tie it to some sort of event, like a, you know, a meteor or something like that. The other possibility is a big hurricane. You know, sea levels were coming up. And it may have just shifted sediments enough to bury this stuff. And so once things get covered up, you know, they they get protected from oxygen, there's no decay. So these trees were essentially entombed, you know, while they were living. And everything below the oxygen level is still there. And that's why all the trees look like they were cut off at the same height. Um, And, you know, when you cut into them with a saw, they still smell fresh, like fresh piney trees. And they have sap that oozes out of the cuts. So... They're preserved all this time. Why are they exposed now? Well, Hurricane Ivan in 2004 had 90-foot waves, some of the biggest waves ever recorded in the Gulf of Mexico. And we believe one set of these giant waves came right through this area and just scoured out five or six feet of sand and revealed the stumps. Now, when we last spoke with you, you were concerned that furniture companies, perhaps guitar companies, would come looking for this forest. What's happened on that front? 
Well, you know, the forest kind of went viral last year, and that's how it came to y'all's attention. And all these salvage companies started calling and offering to buy the coordinates to the site because they wanted to go, you know, dig them up exactly like you say. So we decided uh, to push to have it turned into a national marine sanctuary. We've actually made a great deal of headway, um, and I believe NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is, is going to make it a sanctuary where you'll still be allowed to fish and you'll still be allowed to scuba dive. You just won't be able to steal the stumps off the bottom. What other steps are you taking to protect the forest? Well, you know, raising awareness. We started making a documentary, and so we assembled a little film crew, and we have a team of scientists that go out there with us, and we've been shooting for about a year, um, and hopefully we'll have something finished by the end of the summer. We think that may go further than anything else, kind of bringing people to it, showing them that it's, you know, this is, it's like the Grand Canyon. It's, it's a natural wonder. And if we pull it up off the bottom, it's over. It's gone. To what extent have you been able to keep the coordinates of the forest secret? Uh, well, we've actually protected them. I still haven't given them to the government agencies yet uh, <laughs> with the understanding that they'll get them when they come see the forest. And you know, we're trying to keep them out of the public record. So very few people have them right now. And we only visit the site on weekdays so that nobody can you know, idle up next to us and steal them. So far, I've never seen them published on the Internet or anything like that. But, of course, you know, with any secret, it's a matter of time. So we feel like the clock is ticking, and we need to get it protected before the numbers get out. Because right now, there's no law that would prevent a company from pulling a stump up off the bottom if they knew where they were. A sea level rise, of course, is a huge problem that faces a number of coastal communities around the world right now. What does this uh, forest teach us about uh, nature, climate change, sea level rise? Well, whatever the cause of sea level rise and climate change, this is proof positive it happens, and, and it happens quite dramatically. Uh, <laughs> you know, you come up off the bottom from seeing these stumps, and you stare in the distance, and you can see all these oil and natural gas platforms and these high-rise condos on the beach. And it sort of reminds you that they're all going to be underwater eventually. You know, you go 100 miles inland in Alabama and along the Gulf Coast, you find shark teeth and whale bones, because that was all part of the ocean at one time. Ben Rains is the director of the Weeks Bay Foundation. Thanks for taking the time today, Ben. Hey, thank you all very much for having me on. Let's come up from under the waves now and head to Conyers, Georgia, for our weekly trip beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. He's the publisher of Environmental Health News, EHN.org, and DailyClimate.org, and joins us on the line. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. I've got a tourism story for you like no other. Um, it's from a Newsweek writer named Alexander Nazarian. He took a little excursion recently on the company Dime to a fast-growing tourist destination in a country where you wouldn't expect to see growing tourism. And that country would be? The Ukraine, our most recent global flashpoint, the place where the old Cold War may start to uh, be reenacted. But one of the Ukraine's most famous gifts from Russia is starting to draw a crowd. And that gift is none other than the Vladimir Ilyich Lenin atomic power station, better known to the world as Chernobyl. I suppose it is a hot destination. Well, yeah, the Ukrainian government, it's not entirely off limits. There's tourism around, not in the Chernobyl plant. They started offering limited access to Chernobyl about a decade ago, despite the fact that there are serious radiation risks and that those risks will persist long after we're gone. In 2004, they drew about 800 tourists. But this year, one Kiev-based travel outfit says they'll take about 12,000 people to the ruins. 
it still sounds a little crazy. Yeah, I don't disagree, but this is a great story. Uh, Alexander Nazarian, the writer, describes walking around Pripyat. That's the ghost town. It used to have 49,000 people in it, most of them uh, involved in uh, uh, running Chernobyl. Some places are off limits. You always have to carry a dosimeter there. And obviously, you don't stick around too long. And the guest cottage where they put you up advises you to remove your radioactive shoes before going inside. So with all the turmoil and anguish in the Ukraine, one of the things that's thriving is the ghost town at Chernobyl. Yeah, and whatever you think of Vladimir Putin, don't ever say that Russia has never given the Ukraine anything. Next story? Sure. The Riley Tar and Chemical Company on the southwest side of Indianapolis. Uh, They refined coal tar, treated wood products for decades. They closed down in 1972 and left a big enough mess that it became a 120-acre Superfund site. It was an eyesore when it closed, a patch of land whose only use was a storage lot for truck trailers, and of course that didn't make it any less of an eyesore. And I take it we had some kind of rebirth where the princess kisses the frog? Well, not quite, because science tells us that neither princesses nor frogs tend to hang out or thrive at Superfund sites contaminated with things like creosote and benzene and pyridine. But what did happen is that the company that inherited the abandoned property struck up a partnership with a solar company. They brought in EPA, a local government, the local utility to um, take about a third of the site, the Superfund site, and turn it into a solar farm, 43 acres of solar panels. EPA has been involved in converting uh, several Superfund sites into solar farms. This is the biggest one yet, and they have plans to triple the size of this one and cover most of that former Superfund site. So unlike Chernobyl, it looks like a happy ending. Well, in, in fairness, you may eventually have a happy ending at Chernobyl, but we'll have to wait thousands of radioactively miserable years to find that out. So tell me, Peter, what's on the history calendar this week? Well, Steve, when you deal with science on anything, generally you don't start with a 38-year-old magazine piece, right? Yeah, that's generally not how science works. And for that matter, that's not how journalism usually works either. Well, it's time to wish a happy 38th birthday to that infamous Newsweek magazine story on global cooling. Time magazine did one back then, too. And uh, in the 1970s, there was, in fact, some speculation that we were entering a cooling period, and even big brain thinkers like Buckminster Fuller took it seriously. Yeah, but I don't think most of the scientific community took it all that seriously. Correct. And, And this is 38 years ago. We were still in Vietnam. I was still in high school. And yet this is now still a major talking point for climate science deniers. Back in January of this year, one of our contributors, Doug Strzok, went and tracked down the guy who did that Newsweek story 38 years ago. Uh, The reporter gave us a very reporter-like answer and said he stands by the story to this day, based on what he knew then, but he also admitted to being astounded that a 38-year-old magazine piece about global cooling is still being talked about. You mean like you and I are, uh, well, now, 38 years later. Okay, yeah, yeah, busted. Uh, Maybe I shouldn't have brought it up. Peter Dykstra is the publisher of Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks a lot, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. It was NOAA oceanographer Gregory Johnson who kicked off our April poetry request when he crystallized part of the U.N. climate science report into haiku. He sent in some more haiku specifically for Earth Day, and so did his mother, Joyce Johnson of Falmouth, Massachusetts, who writes, Earth Day is the time 
to come to aid the monarchs. Plant milkweed seeds now. She wasn't the only one with stern instructions. On our website, for instance, Patty Linder Dodd wrote, Rusty tin sits spoiled, staining the view for us all. Pick up already. Some of you were more philosophical. My name is Christopher Denton. I am a practicing real estate attorney in a little upstate city in New York called Elmira, New York. And I write poetry on my own. And I said, you know, I'll think about this. Maybe I can write something. I'm always thinking about the environment and uh, matters of, of land. So it was pretty easy to just pop out. And it did. Earth is mineral. Man is biological. All is chemical. And we liked Bridget Carroll's thoughts as well. She wrote, environment, one syllable short, one mention, not nearly enough. We agree, not nearly enough, and poetry has the power to express deep thoughts in very few syllables. I'm Carol Emmerich. I'm a retired elementary school teacher, and I've lived and worked in the Santa Clara Valley, once known as the Valley of Heart's Delight, before it became known as Silicon Valley, all of my life. We're in high spring, really edging towards summer, and all of the spring colors are out, and it's quite beautiful. We're in the middle of drought, though, which is uh, a rather frightening drought. So any spring colors, flowers, greens, are well worth celebrating. I sing spring colors. Green stalks hold bright pink blossoms. They will not stay long. And the second one, every earthly thing renews itself in springtime. For how much longer? Our final words today come from Eric Black, who we reached on a rather scratchy line in Pittsburgh. For the deniers, this haiku. Drought where it should rain. Superstorms setting records. This is climate change. We have many more of your haiku, thank you all, and we'll post as many as we can on our website, LOE.org. And remember, we're always glad to hear from you, so get in touch with us through comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Or you can use our postal address. It's Post Office Box 99007, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199. Or call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Clarissa Baker, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Catalina Pierce-Schmidt, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, and Jennifer Marquis all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. We had engineering help this week from Jake Rago. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of Red Tomato, supplier of righteous fruits and vegetables from Northeast Family Farms www.redtomato.org 
This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.